1: Well, good morning again, and once again, Happy New Year. It's hard to believe that we are already in 2023. And just as with last week on Christmas Day, it's such a joy to be here uh, with you on the actual New Year's Day as we worship together. And we still find ourselves in the midst of many ongoings, political turmoil, even wars, uh, challenges, not only in our country, but all over the world. And when you look at the world whether it's during peace or war, during famine or prosperity, or whatever it may be, we understand that in every society and in every culture, there are divisions. There are divisions regarding social classes. In our country, it happens to be based on finances. You have the upper class, the middle class, the lower class. In other countries, it is very similar. But some countries and cultures, it's based on other things. For example, when I was in Albania, it had nothing to do with finances. It had to do with whether you were educated or not. And that went deeper than that. There's just an assumption that if you were from the north, you were uneducated, even if you were a university graduate. But the reality is that there are social classes. There are divisions. Even in trying to equalize everyone in following the principles of socialism we know that in communist regimes there are those who are the great great haves versus the have-nots there are clear distinctions it's a fact of life it's a reality in your job it's a reality in your neighborhood it's a reality when you try to buy a home or find a new apartment of certain cities you can afford and others you cannot again because of differing social classes that reside within those communities Well, what happens when those divisions, those hierarchies, those ways of thinking enter the church? What happens when you walk into a church and you see reserved seating for those who are dressed well, who are wealthy, and the poor or those in mismatched clothes are asked to sit in the back or in the overflow room and just sit with the crying children and watch a video feed? doesn't sound right. In fact, some of you may be wondering, what church is that? What church would do that? Because it doesn't fit within Christianity. And that is exactly the issue and the problem that James addresses as we come to chapter two of the book of James. And in fact, it's such a big deal and such a big problem in the hearts of the early believers. And I believe in the hearts of modern believers That we're going to spend several weeks on this passage, on this series, simply because James himself spends much ink on this particular issue. But this morning, we can just start with the beginning, the foundations. So, would you turn with me to James chapter 2, verses 1 through 4? James chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. I want to welcome you if you're joining us for the first time. We do practice expository preaching here at Grace Bay Area. And we, by the way, we are also normally not here. Next week we will be back at St. Mateo High School, our normal meeting spot. But to our passage, verses 1 through 4 of James chapter 2. Follow along as I read. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, You sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, You stand over there, or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? This morning in this passage, I want to give you three primary problems with partiality in the church. Three primary problems with partiality in the church. See, over the next few weeks, we're going to look at multiple issues, multiple problems with partiality or favoritism. Same thing within the church. But in these first four verses of this topic, James gives us three basic, three foundational, three primary issues that serve as a launching point for everything else he will say on this topic. So this morning, from verses 1 through 4 of James chapter 2, three primary problems with partiality in the church. The first is the conflicting standard. The conflicting standard. Let me read for you again verse 1. My brethren... Do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. James starts by readdressing the Christians he is writing to with the phrase, my brethren or my brothers, indicating that he is starting a new topic. This is a general term referring to all Christians, male or female, young or old. And the topic is that, of course, of partiality or favoritism. Now notice that rather than just saying not to have an attitude of favoritism, he tells us not to live out our faith with favoritism. For the believer, holding or living out your faith is synonymous with life. It is the same thing as do not live your life with an attitude of personal favoritism. In other words, he is not addressing favoritism in a particular aspect of your life or specific time in your weekly routine as categorized as holding your faith, he is addressing favoritism at every moment of your life. Because if you are a believer, everything you do falls under the umbrella of holding your faith in our glorious Lord. And by phrasing it this way, he reminds us of the core of our being, the core of our existing, There is no compartmentalizing your life. There is no distinction between faith and job, faith and family, faith and leisure time. Just as you cannot separate your ethnicity or gender from all that you do, you cannot separate anything you do from your faith. You are a Christian. Everything I do, whether it's preaching, whether it's eating, whether it's sleeping, whether it's spending time with my family. I do it as an ethnically Taiwanese man, even if what I am doing is not considered blatantly Taiwanese or limited to the male gender, because I cannot remove those things from me. In the same way, everything you do, you do as a Christian even if it is sinful or outside of the church walls. It is who you are. And James goes on to highlight the wonder of it all by referring it not to faith or even faith in Jesus Christ, but faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. More accurate, accurately in the Greek, our Lord of glory, Jesus Christ. This phrase speaks of his heavenly exalted status. And it has a tie-in to his future coming, which will be in that same exaltation and by which our salvation will be completed. Now to the main point. James goes on to say that we are not to live out our faith in Christ with any hint of partiality or favoritism. That word favoritism in the Greek literally means receiving or lifting up someone's face. It speaks of giving someone special favor or respect based on external appearance. We say judging a book by its cover. This has nothing to do with hidden or internal things such as abilities, character, morality, or anything else. It's simply giving someone preference or removing preference, simply because what you see or hear. And the example that James will give in the next two verses and throughout the passage is that of rich and the poor. But, and this is very important, this is very important, the word favoritism in the Greek is plural, plural meaning this has a wide range of applications beyond financial or social status. Ultimately, what he is saying is that we are not to treat people differently or make judgment calls simply because of outward appearances. And what's more, the phrase he uses indicates that this is not merely forbidden in attitude and thought, but that there are specific and repeated acts that the early church is committing that shows favoritism. Bottom line, faith and favoritism are incompatible. And the wickedness of this practice goes back to the fact that we are representatives of the glorious Lord who shows no partiality whatsoever in His redemption. In fact, not this week, but next week, He will go on and use that as a source of, of why the early Christians should not show favoritism. That's the conflicting standard. Faith versus partiality. Now before you start making New Year's resolutions about playing favorites, we need to study what James is specifically talking about because the word is quite general. And he's not saying that you can't be closer friends with certain people Or even that you can't prefer the company of some more than others due to similar interests. That's not what he's talking about. He's not saying within the context of the local church that you have to go around and try to talk to every single individual at church and give them equal time. And he's definitely not saying you can't have favorites in regard to the earthly, foods, colors, sports teams. So what is he saying? Let's move on to the next two verses and see in our second primary problem with partiality in the church, the conventional scenario. The conventional scenario. What James is about to describe, illustrate what's happening in the church and is a reflection of a common and acceptable distinction that is made in society. That distinction includes the socially acceptable scenario in which a rich person is given a place and position of honor over and against the poor person. Although most likely hypothetical in its detail, the example James gives addresses a very real underlying sin in the lives of believers. Look at verses 2 and 3 again. He says, For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring, and dressed in fine clothes and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say you sit here in a good place and you say to the poor man you stand over there or sit down by my footstool this is an example that James is giving to explain partiality or favoritism within the church and this may or may not be the exact outworking of partiality in your heart in your context, in our church, but it makes the point. Here's the scenario. A rich person is walking into the church. We assume these two people are visitors because they don't know where to sit. They need to be greeted and told where to sit. And the rich person is immediately directed to sit in a preferred seat. But then the poor man comes in. He is asked to stand or sit on the floor. Let's unpack the details of this short but problematic story. Now these two people walk into the assembly. This is referring to church. It's a Greek word used of either the church building or the congregation that met in that building. In other words, it's the church. And in this time and place, in the historical context, which is still true in in many cultures, it's not true here in the Bay Area, But in that context, it was very clear who was rich and who was poor from how they dressed. Not so much the case today, especially here in the Bay Area. You have millionaires wearing ragged jeans and t-shirts. You understand. The rich, as James points out, would have a gold ring and fine clothes. Now, rings were common in the ancient world for men to wear, and someone's social status could be determined by them. Often more than one ring was worn, and in this case we know this person is upper class because not only does he have a ring, but he has an expensive gold ring. In ancient Rome, there were actually five levels of social classes. Now if you even remember just a little bit of what you learned in school about ancient Rome, you remember that the senators were the all-powerful. Right? The senators were the most powerful and influential people in the Roman Empire. And thus, we understand that the senatorial class was the highest class. Now, that was unique. That was rare because they were politicians. The highest class, so the second highest after senatorial, so the highest for normal people was called the equestrian class. And the equestrian class, archaeologists have told us, was indicated by a gold ring. Now, whether or not James is being that specific is not clear, but regardless, we know that this person is upper crust. We know this also because of his, quote, fine clothes. The word fine doesn't mean nice, it means bright or shining, meaning not only were they regularly cleaned, but they were made from nicer, flashier fabrics than your typical white Roman toga. You have to understand there was no running water. There was no indoor plumbing at this time. There were no washing machines. And everywhere you went, you generally walked. Or if you were a soldier or you had the abilities, you would ride a horse or ride in an open chariot. You got very dirty. And so to clean things whenever you got a little smudge on them just didn't happen because it would take a lot And unless you were wealthy, you just wouldn't walk around with clean clothes all the time. And so here is a wealthy person with bright and shining clothes. And some of these fine clothes, again, according to historians, were even said to have silver woven into them, thus causing them to be even shinier and brighter. Now at this same time, this same church service, if you will, there is a visitor who is poor. He is also recognized as such by his clothes. They are dirty. Now, we need to be careful not to over-spiritualize this. It is easy to take something that is historically contextual and say, well, in our society, this and this. We have to look at what it says according to what James would understand. We can't over-spiritualize this by pushing our modern thinking into it. This was not someone who spilled coffee on his shirt on the way to church or just came off of a graveyard shift at a construction site. This man was dirt poor. And his poverty is seen in his clothing. And so we know to be clear that we're talking about financial status, not spiritual poor or poor in spirit. And the depth of this person's poverty is seen in the word dirty and the stark contrast it has with the word fine to describe the rich man's clothes. This is filthy clothing. And this goes beyond what I referenced earlier, the inability to clean them. The typical white toga of the Romans had to be cleaned often and when someone did not have the ability to have it cleaned, they actually had a derogatory term in Latin for these people called "sordidati." It comes from a word that means filthy, nasty, and poor in the Latin. And the depth of the filth is shown in that the Greek word James uses is the same word he used in one twenty-one to speak of our sinful filth that we are to put off. These clothes were nasty. This is not someone who is just poor by our standards. By our standards, this would be a homeless person who came in the door, and those of you in the front row would say, what is that smell? This is a person who came in filthy, stinky, mismatched rags. So you have a rich person, and you have essentially a beggar. That's the setup. And before we go on, I want you to notice something very important. Nothing, good or bad, is said about the rich or the poor, visitor. There is nothing wrong with being rich. There is nothing wrong with being poor. It is not wrong to show up to church with flashy clothing and jewelry. It is not wrong to come in a dirty toga. Well, in our context, yeah, a dirty toga, but you see what I'm saying. In fact, in James' scenario, there's nothing wrong with the visitors at all. The problem he is addressing is how the Christians in that assembly treat these visitors. Now look at verse 3 for the problem. So rich man comes in, poor man comes in, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes. And you say, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. The favoritism here is fleshed out when the wealthy visitor is given not only a seat, but a good seat. The poor visitor is not only refused a good seat, but is not given a seat at all. James says that special attention is given to the one with fine clothes, which means to look upon with favor, respect, or interest. Again, this is a matter of the heart. Again, this is entirely based on what he is wearing, outward appearance. They don't know if he's a believer. They don't know if he's done good. They don't know if he's a very servant-hearted believer. They don't know anything about him, just that he's rich based on his clothes. And the way that he is spoken to in the Greek indicates that this isn't just ushering, hey, here, here, sit here. This is a very cordial, respectful, polite invitation to sit in an honored seat, which would have been somewhere in the front row, unlike today. Contextually, you remember that James is writing to a very Jewish audience. These are Christians. These are born again Christians, but they are ethnically Jewish. They were raised Jewish. And so, in other words, these are individuals who, up until their recent salvation, would have attended the synagogue regularly. So, they would be familiar with the practice in the synagogues in which the Pharisees, remember them from the Gospels, would have reserved special seats. And it is quite possible that they have carried this practice over into the Christian church, not so much for Pharisees, of course, but of anyone who was clearly, based on how they were dressed, rich. So, like the Pharisees, but in a secular context, they were upper class. It is even more possible that they are simply doing what is naturally, natural rather, and socially encouraged. Now to the poor man. He's dirty, he's smelly, he's clearly poor. And he is told to either stand over there, further away, or if he wants to sit, he can sit by a footstool. Now understand, in these days, many people would sit on the floor. They didn't have modern machinery to make chairs or pews like we have today. So even in the synagogue, a lot of people would sit on the floor. That's not the point. The point is when you have a visitor come in, you would say, here, have a seat. And so he is told to stand, standing room only. Perhaps there was enough seats for everyone, but you stand over there or you can sit by my footstool. It's not even invited to sit on the footstool, but next to it. The contrast in how they are treated is the favoritism fleshed out. It becomes very clear. And as you think through this, I'll talk about this more in a minute, I want to remind you what I said a moment ago, that for us this may not be rich or poor. This may be something else. And so we need to not just say, well, yeah, if a homeless guy came in, we'd let him sit. You need to think about the other things going on in your heart where you play favorites with some rather than others simply because of what you see on the outside. I refer to this as the conventional scenario because this is typical in our world. In many places, it makes sense. The President of the United States obviously has a special seat when he addresses the nation in the Capitol building. The dad sits at the head of the dinner table, as does the CEO at the board meeting. Those are not favoritism. Those are practical and in some cases, biblical. What we are talking about is favoritism in the church, a sinful heart attitude, playing favorites because of outward appearances within the community of believers. In other words, and this is, shows us the gravity of the sin taking the world standards and applying it where it does not belong. Applying it among a people and in a place where the world standards have no bearing or should have no bearing. A month ago, I officiated the funeral of a friend of mine. He was a well-respected teacher at a public school in a very wealthy community one of the wealthiest communities not only in the Bay Area but in the country. And so he was teaching the children of wealthy and often influential people. Naturally, education is a big deal to a community that puts great value on their achieved success and social status. And because of that, it came as no surprise to those of us organizing this funeral that the board of trustees of the school board requested that they be introduced by name and given special time to speak at the funeral. A request that I happily ignored. This was a funeral, not a school function, not a school board meeting. And what's more, the funeral of a professing believer is a worship service, and there is no place for partiality in that place. It is very important to notice that James, as with the entirety of the New Testament, is not telling us to be concerned about others, but about ourselves. Again, the issue is not with the visitors. It's the Christian response to those two differing visitors. Specifically, he doesn't address the visitor's view of the church. He's not concerned about what will the visitors think. What will the rich man think if I don't give him the nice seat? What will the poor man think if I give him a place of honor that society says is not for him? James is not concerned with that. He's concerned about our hearts. He's concerned about our view. The rich man and the poor man are just characters to prove the point outside of the fact that one is rich and one is poor, in the scenario, in the biblical lesson, what God wants for us, these two people are insignificant. They're just to show us the sin of partiality. And oftentimes we are so concerned about making sure that others, especially visitors, feel comfortable or that they see us in a good light. And so we focus on pleasing them rather than God. How we please God is not by showing outwardly or harboring inwardly any form of favoritism. If you've been around, you've heard me say this before. As Christians, as salt and light, we are not to focus on our testimony. We are not to focus as Christians on how people view us. We are to focus on holiness. We are to focus on obedience and a godly testimony will naturally flow out of that. Focus overly on how we are perceived and you have no choice but to bend to the will of society and their social norms. Because if you want them to be happy, if you want them to think that we're cool and attractive, then you're going to have to do what they do. And that's not testimony. That's disobedience. Disobedience. And this is exactly what's inherent in this picture. And this is why we must keep in mind that James' teaching here isn't about being nice to everyone so they feel good. Make the poor guy feel good. That's not what he's saying. And this isn't just about preserving our testimony. This is definitely not about growing the church. This, as with all things, is about glorifying God. He goes on to tell us that partiality isn't just wrong. It's not just offensive. It's not just unfair. He says it is evil. It is evil. And James elaborates on this in our third and final primary problem with partiality in the church, the concealed sin. We've seen the conflicting standard, faith versus favoritism, the conventional scenario, giving preference to the rich and powerful, Finally, the concealed sin. Verse 4. When you do this, when you show partiality, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Here's the sin involved with partiality. He asks this question rhetorically such that the expected answer in the Greek grammar is yes. First, James says that by showing favoritism, we make distinctions. This is the sin of partiality. He's saying that it is sinful to show special favor on the one hand or being disrespectful on the other simply because of personal judgments regarding what you see on the outside. As mentioned earlier, we are making these distinctions based on depraved worldly standards that have nothing to do with God. And you can see why this is so wrong. We are to see the world with a biblical worldview, which means seeing people with spiritually transformed eyes and not worldly conformed eyes. We are to see people, whether in our church or outside of it, through the lens of Scripture. We are to see them how God sees them. For the believer, judging or playing the judge, even if in your mind the judgment is positive, positive, right he is a rich guy let's treat him well but in any form of judging it is especially sinful for the believer because we know that only god is judge and this is because only god sees the heart and if there's anything worth judging it's what's in the heart not what's on the outside and we judge when we judge others in this way we claim the right to stand and judge in judgment rather of other people And this is a right that only God can claim. But it isn't that we are claiming the position of judge. We are being judges, James says, with evil motives. Motives, in the Greek, speaks of reasoning. In other words, this is an action done with purpose, with choice, with deliberation. But in this case, the deliberation is rooted in sinful standards and as such, the decisions made are evil. By the way, he says you have become judges with evil motives. In the Greek New Testament, to really push this point home, there are three words that are translated as evil into English. James, in this context, chooses the strongest one it is evil with the idea of vicious intentions whose results are both destructive and hurtful even if you thought well this is a good thing i was just trying to help i was just trying to make him happy for us today As I alluded to earlier, this may not be favoring the rich over the poor. In fact, it may be the opposite. We as good Christians are so trained in the church to be different than the world and not love money that we may actually favor the poor over the rich. But that's still sinful. That's still favoritism. It's still wrong. Maybe our preferences have nothing to do with finances or social status. Maybe we treat other people better, we judge them more positively because they're outgoing. They're more fun. Maybe they look different than the standard churchgoer. We're tired of the cookie-cutter Christian, and so someone comes in with unique fashion choices or tattoos, and we want to favor them because we take the world standard of what is cool. We take outward markers that society considers attractive. But no matter what it is, partiality is sinful. We are so distracted, we have been so deceived by looking at the externals that we forget about the morality. You see this in our culture a few decades ago. Not globally, in our specific culture, but as you know, what happens here bleeds into the rest of the world you saw a major shift in the 60s, 70s, and 80s that our heroes, the people we admired, were not the hard-working moral people. It was the celebrities, the attractive, the outgoing. And so you see this all the time. You've heard me say this before. You have athletes who are doing bad things, and people are yelling at them, and they say, I never asked to be a role model. Well, you're on TV, so you're a role model. And that's our society now. Rather than saying, here's someone nobody knows, but look at him. Look how hard he works. Look how faithful he is to his family. That should be a role model. That, believe it or not, that used to be what it was in our society. But that shifted a few decades ago. And that bleeds into the church We are attracted to the people who are cool and outgoing and fun without knowing anything about their morality. In fact, I have seen so many Christians go down the path of becoming buddies with people because of those types of things, and they start listening to the advice and the counsel based on their personality and not their morality. And what happens is they both get dragged down further and further away from God. We need to be careful. The partiality is sinful because we are looking at external factors. And that's the that's the example that Jesus will give. Partiality. James or James will give rather. He says, Jesus showed no partiality when he saved you. You were a sinner. You are anti God. You rebelled against him. See, that's the point. There is partiality with God when he looks at the heart. Look at how he treated the Pharisees versus the naive and ignorant disciples. It's because he knew what was in their heart. Now, maybe we default to looking at the externals because we can't look at the heart. But we need to be warned. We need to be careful. There's danger there. But no matter what it is, whether it's their personality, whether it's their fine clothing, whether it's their filthy rags, partiality is sinful. It is the concealed sin because no one in society would blame you. In fact, if you didn't do those things in the church, you're quite... I sent my friend, I told you he was the CEO of the company and you made him sit in the back? Are you kidding me? So different out there. But that's not to be the case in here. And again, I call it concealed because it doesn't even seem sinful at first. You're just being nice. You're being welcoming. You're giving people the recognition they deserve, but God says it's evil. Even outside of the church, we're giving proper recognition to certain individuals is right. Right? We as Christians must be careful of showing partiality in our hearts and in our minds. Making judgments in our hearts. And remember, in this story, in this example, half of the problem is actually lifting someone up. Half of the problem is actually doing something that would have made that person feel special and good in the church giving someone preference. But according to James, that's the main part of the sin. It's not that we ignore people. We don't say congratulations when congratulations are due. It's not that we don't recognize their hard work or whatever it may be. That's not what we're talking about. You have to understand that everyone is equal in the eyes of God. And if you truly look at someone based on how God sees them, We're all sinners. Millionaire or pauper, it's all because of God's sovereignty, anyway. We need to be careful. And so, as we begin this multi week study of partiality, these are the three basic, foundational, primary problems with partiality in the church the conflicting standard, the conventional scenario, and the concealed sin. Here's the big picture. Showing partiality is not Christ-like, and we'll see that more unpacked next week. Because next week we'll see James appeal to the fact that God saved us while still sinners. He did not play favorites based on good works, religion, or social status. And you understand this in the church. We, we, We rejoice about this, that there's so many different kinds of people And we all worship together. We sing the same songs. We worship the same God. We listen to the same sermons. You rejoice that you are accepted here and that others are too. Not because we're a great welcoming church, but because God is a great welcoming God. In this very church, sitting in this very room, there's an ex-con. And I call him brother. There's an adulterer. I call him friend. There's an alcoholic. I respect his wisdom. Ultimately, we don't show partiality because partiality places undue value on the things of the world rather than the things of God. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes, and say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are the great equalizer. We are all sinners, and you have saved us. You have brought us into your fold. Lord, we are so bombarded by the status of the external in our world. We struggle with envy and jealousy of those who have much. And in some small way, perhaps we've deceived ourselves into thinking if we treat those people right, we will gain or be shared their wealth. Father, maybe it's not finances. Maybe it's physical attractiveness by the world's standards. Maybe it's fun. Maybe it's just doing things differently than the rest of the church. Whatever it is, Lord guard us, help us to see and recognize any partiality in our hearts and help us to repent of it. May we use our salvation, the gift of discernment and wisdom that you have given us in a way so that we treat people and see people the way you see them. And leave the judgments up to you for you alone see the heart. May we strive to be this kind of person May we strive to be this kind of church. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells.